And now I will introduce today's program. No one would dispute the importance of higher education to our individual and collective well-being. In fact, that connection has been recognized for millennia. Aristotle wrote over 2,000 years ago that the fate of empires depends on the education of youth, and it still does. In today's economy, the fate of our province and our nation is no less dependent on our universities fulfilling their many missions. The main mission, of course, is providing the very best education to their graduates. These are the people who will help boost our productivity and raise our standard of living. They will put us at the forefront of research and development, inspire and develop our artists, make our businesses more entrepreneurial, and our institutions better managed. They will showcase Canadian talent and knowledge internationally while engaging our communities here at, and at home. While universities are busy, busy making sure all that happens, they're also dealing with some very complex and messy issues these days. Labor relations issues, funding and fundraising issues, enrollment and accessibility issues. We are fortunate to have with us today three chancellors who have the experience and knowledge to help us better understand the challenges facing today's universities. David Dodge became the 13th Chancellor of Queen's University in 2008. He's well known and well respected as the former Governor of the Bank of Canada, and before that served as the Deputy Minister of Finance and held a number of other senior positions in the federal government. He received his undergraduate degree in economics from Queen's and later returned to his alma mater as a professor, as well as teaching at a number of other major institutions in Canada and the U.S. The Honorable David Peterson is the 32nd Chancellor of the University of Toronto. While he is best known for his many years in political office, particularly the five during which he was Premier, David Peterson has an extensive background in business and law. He serves on a number of corporate and public sector boards and was recently named the chair of Ontario's bid to host the 2015 Pan Am Games in the Greater Golden Horseshoe area. John Thompson was recently installed as the 20th Chancellor of the University of Western Ontario, but his association with the university goes way back. He graduated from Western with a degree in engineering science and years later received an honorary LLD from Western. He has spent most of his career with IBM, serving as President and CEO of IBM Canada, and in very senior positions with IBM in the U.S., including Vice Chair of the Board. He currently chairs the Board of TD Financial and is a director of several other major institutions. Our distinguished guests are joined by Globe and Mail's education reporter, Elizabeth Church, whose knowledge of this sector makes her a very strong addition to this team of experts as she moderates today's session. I'll turn it over now to Elizabeth to steer today's discussion of the vital link between research and innovation at Ontario's universities and the success of the Ontario economy. I'd like to invite you all now to come on stage. Oh, is that? Where's the dumpster? <laughs> 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 
Well, welcome. Uh, I thought that it, would, it might uh, be a good idea just to start off uh, with you three explaining what your job is as chancellor. Uh, maybe a lot of people don't uh, know a lot about the job and what it entails. Mr. Peterson, do you want to start? Well, what do I do? I've been asked that before. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think in formal terms you'd say that the chancellor is sort of the volunteer head of the university. We're all volunteers. Most of us have other careers and we're sort of in the back end of our careers. Um, in specific to what I am, I, I've been on the back end of my career for a long time, Johnny. Let me, um, I preside over 30 or 35 convocations. I am deeply involved in all aspects of, the, of, the, of university life. I sit on the Board of Governors. I chair the Honorary Degree Committee. I debate with the kids in Hart House. Shelley and I appeared in the play The Christmas Carol. I speak to the kids, lecture the kids. I show up all the time. We, I've met with um, alumni from Hong Kong to Oshawa and almost everywhere in between. And you could say the biggest, uh, best analogy probably is you're, you're kind of like the, the lieutenant governor. You don't have any power. You really carry the bag of the president. But you bring the volunteer <laughs> aspects to it. And in many ways, I call, consider myself the chief enthusiast. It is the most fun I've had in my whole life. I, it's a wonderful universe, wonderful people. And we're very lucky to have these positions. So, well, you're, you're the new kid on the block, aren't you, Mr. Thompson? Yeah, I am. So uh, I'm still learning from these characters. But um, <laughs> I think of it as an ambassadorial role, as being an advocate for the universities and for higher education. Obviously, there's a ceremonial part where you preside over the graduation. And uh, all of us are... Um, ex officio members at least of the boards of governors and of the senates but we're all different in universities so some like David would play a more active role in that than say I do at Western. David I don't know you're somewhere in between beginning in all those plays and things <laughs> but um, it, it does vary from university is my point. If you practice they might invite you John. <laughs> and what about yourself Mr. Dodge? I would describe one of the key roles is we're kind of a bridge between the academic institution and the students, the people that are doing the real work, and the community as a whole. And we try to make that bridge to explain to the community as a whole what's going on inside and indeed to bring some outside influence to the academic community. Okay. Do you see your roles changing in, in, in evolving at this point because of uh, the attention right now that's being paid to higher education by the public and, and by governments. But this group we have put together, I think is the first time in any serious way the chancellors of all the universities in Ontario have come together with common voice, and we have different variations on the theme, to speak together for higher education, for research and development, which plays into the competitive agenda and many others. And I think, I think there was a sense that maybe we didn't use that whatever uh, modest influence we have to make the case for something that we think is extremely important. Well, maybe you want to talk a bit more about that. I mean, you've come together as a group, I mean, outside this panel and, and what you're doing here today. Well, we came together kind of by accident, um, but thinking that... Uh, <laughs> There, was a, there were things that we could do together that are more important than, than the things we do individually uh, and bring common voice to it. We have a university system that has a place for virtually everybody. We're all different and to some extent competitive, 
but by and large not. And we want to harness our mutual strengths for the benefit of the kids that are coming up the system. Okay. And not just the kids. Okay. That's <laughs> very, very clear. Uh, I mean, university students, some are undergraduates that have come right out of high school, but very importantly, we train graduate students and people who come back to do advanced degrees after they've been out for a while. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a broader thing than just dealing with, as David puts it, the kids. Now, he, he calls them kids because of his white hair. Everybody's then. a kid to me. That's the... <laughs> Well, you know, as Canada looks to maintain and increase its, its competitiveness on the global stage, what role do you see the university system playing in that, uh, and, and how is it changing? Mr. Dodge? I'll, I'll, I'll start off. I mean, first of all, <laughs> we should always have been there, and universities have always been the incubators for talent in our community, and they've always provided the bridge for people that are new to Canada to get integrated into Canadian society and go on and make a huge contribution. None of that is new. I think the one thing, Elizabeth, that may be a little bit different today is that we've gone through a period the last five years where labor markets have been extraordinarily tight, uh, where the great pressure uh, on people was to get out and be productive, the jobs were there. We've now got a period, and we will have for two or three or four years, when labor markets won't be so tight. And so it's very important that we use this period of time uh, to prepare ourselves for the next decade when we're going to have a shrinking labor force and where the pool of folks like us with no hair or gray hair are going to be getting out of the labor market. So the challenge today is a little different than it might have been five years ago, but it quintessentially the role of the university remains the same. Do you want to add to that? Okay. Yeah, what I, what I was going to say that, you know, as we are now in a, in a knowledge-based economy, as we're in a global economy, uh, the requirements to be able to compete as a country and um, as an organization, organizations, whether they're businesses or their government or whoever they are, the bar has raised way up. And... Uh, so while we've made a lot of progress in terms of uh, having far fewer people that, that uh, only have a high school degree or less, we still fall behind a lot of the other competitive countries, whether it's OECD or the, in the United States in particular as a trading partner, in terms of uh, the number of university graduates we have as a percentage of people in business or in government, and um, particularly in the graduate degrees. So we have far fewer masters and PhDs, and uh, specifically in industry. Our productivity as a country is falling behind. We have a gap. And uh, we're probably, from most of the latest studies, a little less innovative as a country than we need to be. And so that makes a huge case, in my mind, for uh, increasing the quality of education and, and having far more graduates and postgraduates go through the system. Just to reinforce what John has said, look, we are sitting here at a very unique time in the history of not just this country, but the world. And then, interesting enough, by coincidence, a week or so ago, the federal government, to their credit, 
announced a major infusion of capital, particularly for maintenance, deferred maintenance, which is so necessary to the system, and I think demonstrated a sensitivity to the issues that we're engaged in, and I, and I think it's fair to say uh, the Premier has been very, very uh, cognizant of this with his reaching higher programs, and a lot of money has been pumped into the system, but we need even more, and we've got to make that case, and it's a hard case to make. Last week, you read about um, uh, Richard Florida and, and Roger Martin, who have said they want to take participation rates in post-secondary education from 40 to 60 percent. The Premier's even talking 70 percent to accomplish exactly the things John has said. This is not just about national issues, in it, or even hemispheric issues. This is a global issue that we're involved in. And you look at the stats for research, I mean, for example, China's increased its research 23%, you know, uh, and, and South Korea is now, so its countries are now spending 6.5% of their sales on research coming up to almost the United States. This is not a tea party anymore, and we have to, I think, persuade people we are part of the solution. We're not the problem. We're the solution. But it's going to take a, a, a diversion of resources to this sector that maybe some people won't be totally happy with. Okay. Well, I wanted to bring up the point about research, and this was something I was going to touch on later, but maybe it's a good time to talk about it now. Uh, in Canada, uh, much, uh, much more percentage, higher percentage of research is done on your campuses than in the private sector, uh, and some have speculated that will be increasingly the case with companies such as Nortel uh, disappearing from the landscape. Uh, what do we do? How do, how do universities... Uh, uh, build those bridges and increase more R&D uh, to happen outside the campus. I mean, can universities continue to shoulder, uh, the, shoulder that responsibility? Um, Elizabeth, two points. First of all, part of our problem in Canada is that the private sector has not been doing enough and does not do enough, and there's nothing that universities can really do about that. So what is the real challenge? The real challenge is A, to carry out the research, but B, to have ways that that research can migrate from within the walls of academe to be useful and practical outside, whether that's in the physical sciences, engineering, medicine, or the arts and humanities. And so one of our real challenges, and what I think we're all struggling with, is to find mechanisms that we can bridge between what's being done inside, and it's very good, but bridge that to something that will make the lives of individual Canadians better over the longer term. And that's what we're all struggling to do, each in different ways, yeah. uh, but that's a, a real challenge. Yeah. How do you see that? I'm just interested, given you know, your years in industry, how do you see that, that equation going up? Mr. Thompson? Me? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I think it's in all industries. It's not just in uh, science and technology. Uh, First of all, let me back up a bit to what, what you said. I, I think we produce about, do about 30% um, of our uh, research in universities, and if you looked at the U.S. or other countries, more like 15%. But as, so, so we're doing twice as much in the universities as industry. But as David said, it's not, not a problem with the universities. They're, they're doing fine. Uh, we're not doing enough in business or in government or public sector, other organizations. And so we have to do more, and I think there's a couple of keys to it. One is, if we have more 
highly educated people in business, they're more likely to do research or create strategies uh, as part of that business that drive fundamental research and, and new strategies that make them more competitive. And so you do that by bringing the level up. And just to give an example, at, um, at, at TD, for instance, last year, we hired 3,100 people. 92% of them had a university graduate. And about, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but over 20% had postgraduate degrees. Uh, at IBM, my old alma mater, we hired between two and 300 people in the software lab in Markham. Um, they all had a university degree, and 35% had postgraduate degrees. So, you know, we have to have strategies in our businesses that bootstrap, you know, higher levels of, of people into them. I think the other thing is, and I did a survey recently for um, some group that phoned up on how much, <laughs> I don't remember what, I'm sorry, but um, I, I wouldn't attribute it anyway, but um, to see how much uh, uh, co cooperative projects were going on between universities and business. And so I ran around a few of the, few of the businesses, and I found it was very low. There was a fair amount in the business schools in terms of, educating people for leadership programs and those kinds of things. But when it comes down to a partnership between university and business, I was absolutely astounded to see how low it was in Canada. And having lived for almost 15 years in the States in the high-tech industry, I mean, a, a day didn't go by when we didn't start some new project with the university on something we didn't know about to reach out, even though we had huge research within the IBM organization itself. So I think we could do a much better job of having business and university cooperative projects. And then I've talked enough, but I'll just throw out one other idea, and that is we have to have more clusters like Waterloo or Ottawa where there, where there are the development of startup industries. And also I'll leave it for David to say something. I just want to emphasize a point John made, because I, I, I think it's such an important point. It's not just about undergraduate education anymore. It's about postgraduate and, and doctoral education. And people have to understand that those degrees are increasingly necessary. Now, I have a bias. We, I, think we, I think we at U of T do something like 30 or 40 percent of the doctorates in the country today. It's, it, but we know how competitive that is. These are world-class students that are competing against the best university in the world with fellowships and scholarships and research assistance. And if we want to play in that game, we have to get our own sites up. So it's, it, it's, it's different than it used to be. And there's a system that, that absorbs and should absorb a lot of people, again, getting to 60%. But then we have to think competitive in a global way. And if we lose that focus, we will lose our competitive edge in this country. But, but let's, not think that, let's not think that it's just graduate education. Fundamentally, undergraduate education is at the heart of everything that goes on from there. And the great difficulty, I think, with all of us are having, all the universities are having, at a time when things are financially constrained, is to provide that quality undergraduate education, and I use education as opposed to training, that quality undergraduate education that gives people the, both the skills, but even more, the incentive uh, to go on from there. And that's a very real challenge for us here in Ontario right now. Yeah, well
Well, I was going to talk about that. I mean, especially in the Greater Toronto area, there are projections that you know tens of thousands of, of new spaces will be needed. There'll be pressure felt all over the system, and some institutions, universities have said in their planning documents, we're big enough. We don't want to grow any faster. Re real concern about quality. I mean, how do you balance that uh, need to serve as a public inst publicly funded institution with, uh, as you say, not just training, but but the right atmosphere for under education? When you want me to start again? First of all, uh, first of all, with difficulty. Yeah. Uh, it, it requires on the part of the faculty, on the part of the institutions, a real devotion uh, to, uh, to that undergraduate education. That's number one. Number two, it, you can't do a quality job absolutely on the cheap. And so we all have a responsibility, those of us out there in the world, to continue with our donations to the university so that they can proceed the government of Ontario and the federal government to provide adequate uh, operating funding, students and their parents to bear, uh, to bear their share, and indeed the institutions themselves to continue to work to find new ways in this modern age to deliver quality education in perhaps a somewhat different form that really continues to engage individuals. Because after all, this is a human experience. This isn't a technical job, this is a human experience. Is this a good time to talk about tuition? Yeah, because I, that's the... That's the uh... Just to pick up David's point, I, I think when, when it comes right down to it, and I don't disagree with anything you said, and I, I think we want a system that, had, that covers it all, covers the, 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 the student that's only going to go so far, but does the high tech. There's no, there is no conflict between research and teaching in the proper institution, none whatsoever, in my opinion. They can exist beautifully and coexist as in these centers of learning. But the question is, who's going to pay for it, and what percentage of our GNP is going to be devoted to that? These are tough questions. They're political questions. There's so much competition, particularly now, when governments are all under pressure on the revenue side. But governments are probably not going to find all that much more in the, in the very near future for base funding. Endowments are down, pension funds have collapsed, everybody knows that. These are tough things for university administrators, and there's many in this room. I wish they'd, they, uh, they could stand up and speak on this. And the third one, a very controversial issue, is tuition fees. What percentage should a student pay towards their own uh, education? And, and there's different views on this. When I was a kid, I used to demonstrate and say I should be fr it should be free. And I probably believed it then, and I think I did. Um, <laughs> but let me tell you now, we do know that the, 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 the university student is the chief beneficiary of that. What is the proper apportionment of that? And how do you guarantee access, which is key, for the kids that don't have the money? And so some argue an Ivy-type system. In the Ivy League, for example, it's all, it's all needs-based. You know, if you, you get elected, you get into the Ivy uh, School, you go, you go to Harvard, you get in uh, blind. If you have money, you pay. If you don't, they pay. And so people are asking themselves those kind of questions. But the students who are the beneficiaries, I think, and their parents, have, are going to have to be asked probably to pay more under more flexible arrangements going forward. Tough political question. I was going to say you're the, you're the former politician on that panel. I mean, how... how uh... I just remind you that I was defeated, so here I am. <laughs>
Does anyone you want to weigh in on that as well? Not on the defeat. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say that, uh, you know, there's probably no better investment to make than to invest in a university education or, you know, a higher degree, a postgraduate degree as well. And the uh, statistics are quite interesting. So a undergraduate um, degree, either at a college or at a university, makes about 70% more money than someone with a high school degree. Somebody with a master's makes 2.7 times the amount on average that a high school graduate makes. And someone with a PhD makes three and a half times as much money. And if you sit there and, and work with a calculator, I was going to say slide roll. <laughs> um, half the people don't know what that is. No. Try a computer, John. Yeah. Um, you'll find that there's a very good return on investment for that. And I think that uh, parents and family and uh, students who can afford to pay uh, should make the investment and should make the investment to go on in school beyond just an undergraduate degree. Uh, if they can't, then as David said, I think you have to have a needs-based system so that everybody has access. I, I wanted to turn the tables just a bit. We've talked a lot about uh, uh, knowledge transfer in, in a tech transfer model, I think, mostly. But what about uh, the um, humanities and social sciences? That's a part that often... Uh, gets overlooked in these discussions. Would anyone like to take that on? And, and, well, uh, it's not overlooked. Uh, let, let, let's be very careful here. Okay. Uh, I mean, about half of undergraduates are going through arts and science programs, arts and science programs being the fundamental base uh, on which a number of professional schools rely, uh, fundamental, fundamental base on which people go on into various things. And indeed, uh, if you look at the TD Bank, for example, Many of the very best recruits that John's people hire are those that have come through that more broad-based uh, arts and science uh, undergraduate uh, program. Moreover, uh, take a leaf out of what David was saying, I mean, if you look at, at the Florida work, what is really interesting about that is that the creative groups uh, are those with a, a more broad base. So we must not ever neglect uh, that importance. And indeed, we are all national institutions in that regard. And those, that part of the university, whether it's a history department, a politics department, a French department, doesn't matter, are part of the nation building process, which is so important, and part of the identity which will enable us to be competitive in the world going forward. Richard Florida and Roger Merton made the point last week that yes, we need the hard sciences, but even more we need the management leadership, which, which has a very strong humanities base and other kinds of bases to, to build it, to translate the, uh, uh, the science into, into the marketplace. And management brains are almost as important, as they would say, as the scientific brains. So let's not forget all sides of this. We're big enough to do it all if we have the right motivation. Okay.
Uh, I wanted to talk a bit more about research on the global, in a global context. Uh, lots of us watched uh, President Obama give his inauguration speech where he talked about uh, restoring science to its rightful place. And I know a lot of university leaders look at what's happening in the U.S. with some trepidation, the feeling that we've uh, made huge strides uh, on campuses across the country with uh, programs like the Canada Research Chair and, and so on. And I wonder what your feeling is on where the country needs to go now, not to, to, to make sure that it, it stays competitive and, and doesn't lose the ground that we've gained over, say, the last decade or 15 years. Just who wants to weigh in on that one? You yeah. Well, I think there was a sense under the last administration of states that, that science didn't matter that yeah. much. I'm not accusing them of being intellectual pygmies, but there was a sense <laughs> we were the beneficiaries. We were the, we, were the, we were the beneficiaries at our institution and others of a lot of brilliant U.S.-based scientists coming up here, enjoying the atmosphere, here finding the funding. And I think now we're walking into a much more competitive atmosphere. So I think the pressure is the other way. There's some, we don't want it to be seen among our best scientific brains at all the actions of the United States. So there's a new front of competition that's going to make it tougher for all of us. Okay. I'm just looking at some of the questions from the audience. I have one here that, that wonders if we have the university system we need for the 21st century. And uh, what would you do uh, to make it better? What's missing? That's a... See? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, um, I think we have a great system. I think that the Ontario system specifically, but all of the Canadian system, has top-notch universities. I mean, we're world-class. And um, so I don't think we need to take a backseat to anybody. Uh, what would I do? Um, I would make sure that we uh, continue to invest more in quality, which means more postgraduate programs, which I've talked about before. And I think, to your point, if we're going to get, or to David's, if we're going to get to a 70% coverage point of view, we have to expand uh, the bandwidth to be able to, to uh, handle that. And I think uh, we do need to have a system uh, that allows people who can't pay to have access to university, um, and I think that those who can pay should pay. It, it, interestingly enough, just on that point, you know, Quebec for a long time dropped the tuition fees to less than half of what Ontario was, and it did not change the demographics at all. So there are people who can't afford to go that need to be helped, and there's a lot of people who can afford to go and should, should pay to go. Uh, but I think, um, you know, my broad message is we have great universities and uh, more the same is what we need. Is that the consensus view up here, that, that the, the changing of added, the tuition? I would have added one word to that, and that's innovation. We talk a lot about innovation yeah. in the private sector. We need to, inside the institutions, we need to be innovative in the way that we are delivering quality product for the students and delivering the environment that will encourage world-class research. And that means some change. And change is not easy. Um, so it's, it's, not, it's not just doing things exactly the same as we did in the 20th century. After all, we're in the 21st century. Students come with a different preparation uh, today than we did uh, when we came to university. Uh, so we have to find some way uh, to deliver that quality education uh, in a reasonably cost-effective way. And in a very human endeavor, which is education, that is not easy. Yeah. 
Let me add this one, if I may. I think we have, what, 19 universities and 23 community colleges? I think my numbers are right. They're all different, and they should be. There's something there for every student, and the student has to find the one that matches their talents and, 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 and their ambitions. And it's remarkably well run, in my opinion. Some wonderful people engaged in this business. The biggest change I have seen from when I was involved in public life is now they're cooperating. And they're not just competitive about silly things. And, they, and I'm, see, I'm seeing universities putting their departments together. I see centers of excellence drawing on the best brains across institutional lines. I think necessity may have caused this, but I, I have a lot of hope for this system because I see some stunning leadership at the university president's level and the uh, community college level. Everybody, they all get the dilemma we're in. They're all maximizing the resources, and it's working better than I have ever seen it. Now, what about, I mean, you talk about each institution institution offering something different. I mean, some have said that uh, we need to have more differences, that our universities are, are uh, too much alike, and that, that there needs to be more concentration at some at the undergraduate education, uh, some at, 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 at graduate work and, and research. Uh, I mean, do you see the need for, for more of that kind of a, a strategy to differentiate universities? Uh, yeah, each one is developing their own strategy based on their strengths. I mean, I could talk about U of T, but it's got very, you know, it's got three campuses, 70,000 students is the biggest, and it's moving towards more graduate and postgraduate education in certain campuses. <laughs> But that doesn't mean that, that uh, it doesn't cooperate. They're, you know, they cooperate with forestry, with Lakehead, for example. And they do different kinds of things in mining than Lakehead does. And they all work together, at least more so than they did in the past. I don't think we have to sharpen those definitions, those differences at a central level. I think they'll happen on their own in response to various pressures and various markets. These people understand their markets better than we do. They're very sophisticated at working with communities, serving the communities. And uh, I, I have a lot of faith in the leadership of our university system today. Okay. I'd just reinforce that. I don't think that top-down planning and rationalization really works. And I think that people find their own uh, levels and expertise, and the market decides what they do. I, uh, you know, the University of California some years ago, 15, 20 years ago, something like that, tried to rationalize all the various campuses in California, and it was a mitigated disaster because, you know, they had these pockets of expertise and great professors and great research, and you can't dictate how that's going to move from the top down. It just doesn't work. So something like a national strategy is not where we should be going, whether it's constitutionally feasible or not. Depends what you mean by that. I'm just saying Toronto has worked itself out. Yeah. There are three universities here. Sheldon Levy is the president of, of, of Ryerson, doing a fabulous job with Ryerson in different spaces than U of T is or York is. York, except for the strike, is doing a, 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 a we invite them all to come to U of T, not a problem. But, um, <laughs> but I, they all work together, filling niches, and I'm telling you, it's working well on its own. Don't, I wouldn't stick a finger in this and wreck the system. But isn't there also pressures? I mean, there are pressures with capacity that, that, that we have to educate uh, a growing number of, uh, of uh, young and maybe a little older uh, people at our universities. It's going to need a little bit of rethinking and shaking up of the system. Isn't that a reality we have to face? Competitive. Uh, I kind of lean on the competitive side. I mean, our institutions in that sense 
are trying to compete to find innovative ways to deal with things. And they will deal with them differently. Uh, and the difference is to be exalted and lauded, not denigrated. So I think it's much better to allow the ferment, and out of that ferment will come something good. The one thing I would say, though, and I think it's really quite important for us as a nation, is that we try to make it easier for our students to spend some time at another uh, Canadian institution or foreign institution so they get a bit broader background. It's not often not all that easy the way courses are structured to do that. Perhaps we could make it a little easier. Tell you what I think is a real challenge too. There are certain ethno-cultural groups that are not as well represented in post-secondary education. And that for a whole bunch of reasons that are too profound perhaps for me, for me to understand. But you look at the groups where parents put a very high premium on education. They, boy, they look after themselves. They're good. And they, kids get into university no matter whether the kid, parents have money or not. And, 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 it, and life goes on, and these kids make fabulous contributions. There's some groups that are underrepresented. Under and I think that's where we as a society have, in a broader sense, have a real job to put a higher premium on education for those families, particularly the first generation that aren't used to it, making it easier, more accessible, financially easier, and explaining to those families and those people uh, that aren't as persuaded that this is the route to success, equality, and happiness. Okay. Well, I think I've, I've got the high sign that our time's up, so I want to thank you all uh, and thank our audience for, for coming and joining us today. Thanks very much. Well, thank you. Thank you very much to all our panelists and to Elizabeth. And now I'd like to call on Howard Brown, uh, uh, director of the Canadian Club, to officially thank our panelists and moderator. Thank you, Helen. It's an honor for me to be asked to thank our distinguished members of our chancellor's panel for this important and illuminating discussion. And I think it's important to realize when uh, Chancellor Thompson said that we don't have to take a back seat to anyone. I think one of the reasons is we have leaders like the quality of our chancellors here today who represent our universities and make us the envy of the world. So thank you very much, panel, for the great job you did today. I want to just say as well that it was 50 years ago that the Diefenbaker government pulled the plug in the development of the revolutionary Avro Aerojet following, following years of research and design. And as a result, Canada's aerospace industry was dealt a near-death blow. Worse, many of the scientists involved in the development of the aero headed south, where they formed the bedrock of NASA. That might be a stark example, but it illustrates an important point. Money invested in research provides Canada with the technology, knowledge, and human resources to improve productivity and create jobs for the long term. In a time when the world economy is evolving faster than many existing businesses can keep pace, it is essential we stay ahead of the intellectual curve. We must make sure that we take the long view and not settle for short-term fixes to our economic challenges. Building a larger base of scientific expertise and enhancing Canada's international reputation for research excellence will help create jobs 
increase sustainable economic growth, and improve our quality of life. Thank you to our distinguished panel of guests for showing us how this goal can be achieved. Thank you very much. Thank you, Howard. Thank you again to David, John, David, and Elizabeth. And thank you to all our guests for joining us here today. This concludes our television programming, which has been broadcast live on Rogers Television. And this meeting is now adjourned.